my first uh, boss was uh, somebody who as well uh, came from nothing. He was a teacher. He was one of the most successful uh, uh, financial advisors in, in the bank and in the country. Um, he had about six different coaches, um, physical coach, mental coach, family coach, business coach. <laughs> and he, he told me that if you want to be the best at what you do in life, like any sportsman, uh, you need to have your team around yourself. You know, you need to have somebody that can uh, pull you out of, of moments down, somebody that can take care of your well-being and, and health. Um. Welcome to the Impact Multiplier CEO podcast. I'm Richard Metcalf, founder of X Quadrant, and my mission is to help the world's top CEOs and entrepreneurs shift from incremental to exponential progress and create a huge positive impact on our world. Now, that requires you to reinvent yourself and transform your business. So, if you're ready to play a bigger game than ever before, I invite you to join us and become an Impact Multiplier CEO. Today, I speak with Armand Artin. Armand is a client, a friend, somebody I, I admire greatly. Uh, I've worked with him over the last couple of years in various capacities. Uh, but today we go back into his origin story. You see, Armand was born uh, in Bulgaria during communist times, behind the Iron Curtain, struggled with the fact that his passport didn't let him move. They could think it's so hard to move out the country, to go anywhere. And fast forward many years, he's built the industry-leading business, helping people achieve nationality, residency in other countries and break their mobility shackles. Uh, in the conversation, we look at so many things. How did he end up from penniless immigrant to somebody with this hugely successful business with world leaders and policymakers and billionaires on speed dial? And what was the journey that got him from A to B? And what's next for him as he looks to literally 100x his impact in this area? And in the meantime, and along the way, we talk a little bit about our own experience of working together which has been a fun component as well uh, to understand his perspective, his side of that story. So enjoy this conversation with Armand Artin. Hi, Armand, and welcome to the show. Hi, Richard. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you're, you're welcome. Uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation. You and I, we've, we've, we've spoken together, we've worked together for several years now, and I think your story is really fascinating. I mean, if you look at the really big picture, you started, I think, as pretty much a penniless immigrant uh, perhaps you correct me on that, but basically you started up with pretty much nothing. And now I'd like to say to people, you have world leaders on speed dial and you hang out with billionaires and you've built a business, which is one of the premier businesses in your entire industry, defining your industry. So I'd love to kind of perhaps on this episode, explore a little bit about how you got from one state of affairs to the other. So you might want to kind of zoom back however many years and kind of tell us the story. How did all this begin? Well, thank you for the kind words uh, of describing uh, my current state. And um, I love to remind myself and to my kids, um, never forget where you, uh, where you started. Um, literally went back on and, and, and some of the memory lines of my childhood last weekend in Bulgaria, where I was born with uh, my three children to show them where their dad started. Um, and as everybody in this world, um, nobody chose the place of birth. So um, I was born in Bulgaria uh, in 76, which was uh, during the communist time and Bulgaria was part of the socialist bloc uh, from Armenian descent. So grandparents always teach me the, 
value of um, being relocated by force and uh, the importance of saving money in case of uh, that we have to run again. Uh, and they have been doing it for two, three generations back from the Armenian genocide. So um, I grew up with having a suitcase um, ready to go, which not, uh, not many families uh, do, especially in a country where it's peaceful and um, bombs were not falling on, on our head. Um, it was just, you know, communism. Then um, my parents had the, the opportunity to be actually sent as teachers uh, in a program to uh, African country, to Morocco, uh, which Bulgaria had at the time. Uh, and um, that's provided me actually with opportunity at a very early age to travel and to relocate to Morocco. Um, but uh, again, thanks to my parents' uh, foresight, they decided to go with a car and not with a plane, allowing me to see 14 countries and see the West, the other side of the curtain. Now, this came with a cost uh, of applying for 14 visas, which uh, my father had to spend a month uh, pretty much in uh, on, uh, waiting lines in embassies, providing proofs. Yeah, these, yeah these, were on, these were not online visas, I assume, right? At this time, this was a lot of... At the time, no, no, no. At the time, Europe didn't exist. Schengen didn't exist. So 14 different countries, 14 different procedures, 14 different requirements, 14 different forms. And um, I'm, as a single child, I was really following my, my father's footstep and, and um, looking at what he does. And I guess that defined at a very early age the notion of... Uh, you know, being judged by the passport at birds and treated at borders differently than other people who had a better European passport. Um, so again, uh, I think that the, 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 the why of do what I do, it's this early age experience of crossing Europe and living in other countries, being able to adapt yourself quickly into different cultures, again, Muslim culture, which was very different from where I was born really uprooted my my personal development and um, the second important stage was uh, after the berlin wall fell down and bulgaria was you know uh, now uh, being a democratic country we were allowed to leave and emigrate anywhere we wanted um, i had developed uh, a passion for finance i, I saw a movie um, uh, called the city uh, actually a uk series um, in in the early 90s that uh, talk about brokers and, and currency exchange traders on, on the London Stock Exchange. And I decided that that's what I wanted to be at the age of 12. And um, there was no currency exchange in Bulgaria. There was no stock market. So the only thing available close to that was uh, a secondary black market of currency exchange in the exchange offices. And there was this uh, community of 20, 30 years old, you know, youngsters who were currency exchanging between foreigners and local businessmen at the beginning of, uh, of the Bulgarian, uh, you know, capitalist uh, beginnings. So um, I took my value of the tickets for Canada, which my parents decided to immigrate in, in, in the 90s in Canada, and I risked it on that, um, on that exchange. I went to the age of 12 and started trading it. And um, thanks God I was not robbed and, and some of the people took care of me and uh, show me how it works and ask in a bid and different currency and how you can make money and how you can hedge. And uh, when I arrived in Canada at the age of 14 with pretty much nothing, that was uh, 5000 four $5,000 in four suitcases. Again, I, I had this passion of, of finance. So um, I ended up quickly uh, within two years in, in the best colleges, best universities, and, uh, and became one of the youngest brokers, uh, financial brokers to be licensed in Canada at the age of 17. 
Um, started working at the largest financial institution, Nesbitt Burns, uh, Bank of Montreal, later acquired them. And um, I combined those two passions for finance and, and financial markets and freedom by discovering a single product that existed and it was created by Canada, which was a social impact bond where a foreigner could invest into a spe specific bond and will not make money, will not make any interest because the return that he gets is the access to become a resident of Canada. And this is where one plus one became 11 in my head. I just realized that there is so many people like me born in other countries, very successful, but limited in their mobility that they would put a large amount of investment into another country in order to facilitate their freedom of mobility. And, um, I did anything possible to be on that list of private public partnerships with the Canadian government, started my own firm. And as you said, the rest is history. Yeah. So again, fast forwarding, you do this now at scale, right? For all sorts of high net worth individuals, uh, movers and shakers around the world. But I guess it all comes back for me to that moment when you were in that passport line or visa line on that trip to Morocco as a young boy probably feeling like, why am I in this different queue or doing all this extra hassle compared with these people just by the side? That must have been a, a strange experience for, for somebody so young. Well, it's, uh, you know, be, beside the financial, uh, you know, difference uh, of, of uh, you know, coming from, from uh, all equal communist, socialist, you know, uprising and, and being thrown up into uh, France, Germany, Spain, Italy, you know, where... Um, um, Monaco, where, you know, you, I saw wealth for the first time and I didn't understand why, you know, why we live in a society where everybody has to be equal and these guys live in a, you know, whoever makes it wins it. Right. So, uh, all that shaking of notion, but again, that was something people could choose. And I understand it at the early age, you work hard, you study, you can make it, but the passport, um, it's something that, you know, you come with it, you don't choose the place of the birth and, and that little paper. Uh, defines you at that border. And I realized that it defines the person next to me who could be as well very successful businessman or billionaire, but he will be in the same line as me just because his passport is bad. Um, so that uh, notion of uh, second-class citizen that are based on, uh, you know, absolutely um, out-of-control circumstances um, was uh, unfair uh, and unjust. And um, I wanted to find an opportunity to change it. Got it. Got it. So, so tell us the story then. So you said the rest is history, but let's kind of go there. So you, you saw this opportunity between finance and um, uh, immigration or, or global kind of human mobility. Uh, you saw there's a way to bring these things together. Um, how did you go from there to building, you know, this top tier high quality firm that's, that's, uh, that's really top of, it, you know, top of its industry? Yeah, where did you begin? Or what were some of the, at least, I'm sure there's a lot of, a big journey in that, but what are some of the key structural decisions perhaps or key things which you did that really paid off? Well, in the beginning of, um, of, of my career, as I said, I worked for a very large financial institution and in the Bank of Montreal. And um, while I uh, discovered this opportunity as a product called Immigrant Investor Program in Canada, you know, my first idea was like, you know, let's bring that to the management and to the board and, and let's have uh, my bank being part of it and me running this division for a large institution, uh, which, which pretty much would have put me in being an employee for the rest of my life. Um, 
And the fact that uh, the bank turned down the, the idea because of the complexity of dealing with uh, such a product that requires um, a lot of uh, KYC and compliance issue dealing with foreigners coming from what they call high-risk countries, because again, let's be honest, um, when people, I'm saying, are born in a bad passport countries, um, the definition of a bad passport is, uh, is a passport that doesn't allow you to travel to many countries. China, Middle East, Africa, Russia, Soviet, ex-Soviet Union countries. Um, and this is, you know, categorized by the financial system and, and by the West by a high risk country. So it would have been very, very difficult for a large financial institutions to do uh, this specific product. And, um, and, and this is where I realized that, um, small is beautiful. And, um, the, the, if I would have started my own business, I would have not had to, um, you know, convince uh, boards and compliance department, I would have just done it. And um, um, so I went out to the regulator and uh, I said, I would like to have a license for a broker dealer and financial institution. What do I need to do? So as I already had all the licenses and the experience, I just needed the money and the capital. Uh, so I, I found financial partners who uh, put the money and over the next years, I, I bought them out and, and repay their investment uh, with, uh, with great return. And after doing this in Canada successfully, my initial moment uh, of reaction when Bulgaria joined Europe in 20, uh, 2007 was, uh, let's go back to Bulgaria where I was born and now pitch this country that, um, you know, this bad passport suddenly became great passport, became a European passport. So um, I went back and um, I remember meeting different ambassadors and ministers and businessmen and pretty much everybody laughed and said, uh, <laughs> You mean somebody will invest and pay money to get a Bulgarian passport? It was like, they, they, they were still with the notion of Bulgarians, you know, immigrating as refugees in other countries and um, uh, doing anything possible to go in the West. So they were absolutely uh, not uh, understanding the concept of the other way around, people paying money to come in. Until I, uh, yeah, I, I, I did the right presentation and, and ring the right bells and uh, at one point uh, convince um, that uh, this is the right thing to do. And the government's passed the legislation and allowed that, that in 2009 to become a program um, and uh, upgraded the program in 2013. Based on that, we started advising Hungary, Montenegro, Caribbean islands. So today we have um, 11 different countries from Canada as a G7 country to small islands and developing states. Uh, such as Antigua and Barbuda, San Lucia, uh, Montenegro, uh, Italy, that we advise on how can we make uh, this uh, immigration policy more effective to attract the right amount of people uh, with the right and, and clean source of funds into the country that will have the most economic impact. And um, yeah, that's, uh, that's the journey of taking it uh, a, a success in a country where Again, I experienced the immigration process myself, was convinced that uh, Canada is, is, is the most refined migration policy with different steps and points and, and programs. And going back to the old continent where um, migration is not still refined 30 years later or um, 2000 years later. Uh, and um, I think have so many other challenges that, uh, that we can contribute to fix. Yeah, tell me, tell me more about how you, you you just said, you know, hey, I got a meeting with the minister and arranged this, you know, this this new scheme. I presumably you weren't born with, a, you know, a, an address book including all these these high level ministers and, and and other people. So, 
just tell me a bit about like how did you first break in, if you like, to to the really high level discussions needed to shape policy in a country? Again, very early age, while I was in Canada, I um, I had the, the the privilege that within two years of arriving, as you said, uh, with four suitcases and a couple of thousand dollars. I was in the same school as Justin Trudeau um, in uh, in the Collège de Brebeuf, which is known for having given five prime ministers and uh, being the most exclusive private school in Canada. So the fact that the Canadian system allowed for an immigrant like me, uh, just based on marriage, to be in that school, um, I grew up with this uh, wealthiest Canadian and Quebec families and politicians and just realized they're just like me. Um, so I think that, uh, again, thanks to Canada's kind of a multicultural uh, melting pot that doesn't judge people on, on, on level of where you come from or how much money you have, I never felt discriminated or not being allowed to be in the room or not being allowed to do this job because I was an immigrant. So for me, everything was possible. Um, and once a 15 years old, uh, yeah, person thinks everything is possible. There's nothing that can stop him. And, and I assisted uh, at the age of 16 in a conference uh, in Montreal called the Conference of Montreal with uh, Henry Kissinger. And that was the first, I would say, politician of international um, level that I met. And I was passionate about, you know, going to the World Economic Forum, to the United Nation. And um, so I think that this is where I developed the easiness of dealing with um, heads of state and at international organization, IMO, ICAO, UN, WEF, G7, and other places where I have attended in, in the last 20 years um, by, um, by then just um, having the, the facility of, of uh, approaching heads of states and uh, providing my advice that is uh, a win-win formula for these countries to help them reposition their geopolitical, economical, and migration policies um, at no cost for the country. So um, I believe that I really have something to offer and, and nothing can really stop me from uh, approaching and, and uh, expressing my, uh, my points of view on, on these people. Nice. Yeah, so hearing that you, you saw that these people were just people, uh, you had some access perhaps because of the, you know, the opportunities you got in Canada, but then it was also that self-belief that you actually had something valuable that allowed you to knock at doors that perhaps other people wouldn't. Yeah, yeah. Again, I, um, uh, I, I, I like the notion of um, sharing is caring. So I, I knew that I have a, a formula I have discovered that I would like to share with the world and a passion of, uh, of freedom that can be realized by policy and financial instruments. Um, and uh, until now, I have focused on you know, serving these governments and putting them together with the 1% of wealthiest people of the world who become wealthy migrants and contribute to the economies of these countries. My next passion is uh, to find the right formula and the right uh, breakthrough technology, uh, innovation or policies that would allow me to um, expand that freedom to the rest of 99% of the world. Because uh, I'm convinced that if I became who I became is because of the freedom of movement that I had. It wasn't very easy, but it was forced freedom. It still was a freedom. Uh, for, for more than 70% of the world, um, that freedom doesn't exist. Um, they are uh, you know, never going to get easily access to uh, visas around the world based on, on the passports that they hold, regardless how smart and successful they are. 
Well, let's first we can jump into the future in, in, in just a second. Perhaps it's a good time to kind of perhaps weave in a little bit here about our work together because we met a few years ago. Uh, at that point, you know, you'd already built this great business, uh, highly profitable leader in its industry, generating nice profits, whatever I, I imagine. And so, I guess my question is, what was it that perhaps encouraged you, you know, encouraged you to start, you know, to to kind of start working together? Uh, I know that I'd done a little bit of work with your broader organization kind of during the COVID lockdown when they had virtual virtual retreats and things that were going on. And I did a little bit of work there. That's how we kind of got to know each other. But then you, we ended up working together one-to-one. So I'm just kind of wondering if you could take your mind back to that, what perhaps you were looking for from that relationship. Yeah. Um, well, I um, I believe um, in, in the power of... Um, of coaching. Um, so from the, my early career at Nesbitt Burns, my, um, my coach, my first uh, boss was, uh, somebody who as well, uh, came from nothing. He was a teacher. He was one of the most successful, uh, uh, financial advisors in, in the bank and in the country. Um, he had about six different coaches, um, physical coach, mental coach, family coach, business coach. <laughs> and he, he told me that if you want to be the best at what you do in life, like any sportsman, uh, you need to have your team around yourself. You know, you need to have somebody that can uh, pull you out of, of moments down. Somebody that can take care of your well-being and, and health. Um, and um, um, I, I did pretty much, you know, all the Canadian well-known coaching uh, programs with him, uh, from Stephen Coffey uh, to uh, um, Robin Sharma and um, strategic coach Dan Sullivan. Um, so uh, all these books and programs and individuals meeting with these people, um, you know, always guided me, I think, in the beginning of my career. And then at one point, you know, in the euphoria of, of the success, I kind of forgot the need of support. So I, I run, I would say, for about 10 years on my own until um, COVID came and I had the time to kind of slow down for myself, delegate things to my team. And and realized that um, I was I was kind of missing uh, missing the support structure, and I've been running alone for a long time. Um, and uh, this is where you know life circumstances met that we met, and and I'm very happy that we had the opportunity to to do so. So uh, you can bring back some of uh, this uh, assisting um, that every entrepreneur and every businessman needs um, into. You know, let's not forget where is the goal and whatever you think the glass is half uh, empty, somebody can show you it's glass full. Um, all these other examples where uh, I think a coach can turn around the situation, uh, uplift you and, and, and continue uh, the journey. I hope you're enjoying this conversation. This is just a quick interlude to remind you that my book, Making Time for Strategy, is now available. If you want to be less busy and more successful, I highly recommend that you check it out. Why not head over to makingtimeforstrategy.com to find out the details. Now, back to the conversation. Yeah, thank you for that. I didn't know all about that background you'd actually had with, with your boss and all his coaches and everything else in Canada. So that's uh, really fascinating. Um, let me put you on the spot a little bit. I'm always curious because you're in a much position, better position than I am to talk about this. Like, um, as you had that experience of different sorts of people to work with over the years, like what would you say 
what would you say is is I don't know whether it's distinctive about the, what I've the work we've done together or about me? You know, so what what do you get from that relationship? Would you say if you were describing it to somebody else who was perhaps asking you, you know, what do you work with Richard? Well, as you know, I do talk about Richard to my friends and and associates. Um, you do appreciate it, yeah. And I, I do describe I do describe you as uh, as uh, as a part of a of a success formula that. Um, um, you uh, you understand uh, and you can break down some of the complex formulas that uh, a success means in everybody's life and bring it into very measurable units um, and uh, you know help us achieve these milestones on a on a day by day or weekly by week and and um, that your system um, works that you're uh, always personal um, available personal emotionally i would say um connected with with your coaches and uh, with your uh, students or, or clients um uh, the difference with some of the other coaches i had is that you know they would have a group a large group of 50 people or 20 people so you would not have that personal um you know relationship um and time that i have with you i'm so uh, again um wherever i can take that uh, know-how and expertise that you provide me, I share it with my team, being that on my corporate level or nonprofit level. Um, and again, I just do believe that external help is always needed in uh, the life of any successful entrepreneur, athlete, or anybody who um, has a dream to become the best of what he does. Nobody can do it alone. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, what I see in you is say you're somebody, perhaps we'll get onto it in a minute, who has, yeah, who has a really big, big vision, who, whose past is, as, as for all of us, actually, when we mine our past, when we look at our past, we find the fire, right? We find the stories that really drive us. And I think what I see about you is somebody who's really made that a reality, right? In your phase one. And also you want to now multiply your impact and and go bigger in perhaps in, in the next phase of, of your of your life and business. Um, and I think what I've enjoyed in our work together is that, you know, sometimes we've worked with the team, we've done team retreats together with your executive team and we've seen some shifts there. You know, sometimes we're working on strategy and you know and, and new business models and new ideas. Yeah. And then sometimes it's very personal as well, right? And we kind of go deep and, and we look at mindset and we and we look at kind of yeah, you know, all the messy stuff that we all have, you know, somewhere under the under the surface. And I think um, for me, that's what made perhaps made our relationship very rich is that we've been able to kind of look at all those different aspects through that lens. On that topic, why don't we kind of look forward a little bit um, to, yeah, you talked about reaching the other kind of 99%. Uh, You've got to build a business that's you know, incredibly successful at helping that top 1% and you want to scale forward um without going into kind of all the details about well, how that's going to look like the question personal question i want to look at is for you what do you think will you'll need to bring out of yourself to create this this new thing you know to reach the 99 percent? how will armand arta need to change you need sometimes to be reminded of the fire at the beginning and as well as um reminded that you can still do it, even though I, I know very well, and again, I remind myself where, where I started, where I was born and where I am today. Um, at one point I'm thinking, okay, but the next level is something really hard, right? And 
I think people don't realize that it's much harder the first part than the second part, right? That the first million, the first success is actually the hardest. And once you have this trajectory, this, this um, track record, actually, you know, from one to 50 to 100 and to a billion, it's, it's kind of easier than from zero to one million, right? And uh, I think that I, um, I need to remind myself that I'm still that kid of 15 years old that could believe that can change the world and can do anything he wants and can speak to anybody he wants. And sometimes we're the victim of our own success. We kind of limit ourselves with contemplancy and with, okay, maybe that is enough or, um, oh, you know, that, that level is maybe a little bit too much and too far stretch. And, uh, you know, with, uh, with the age and with the success, we become less risk takers than we were at the beginning. So, um, I would like to, uh, go back to, uh, you know, the same level of confidence and nothing to lose. Um, 30 years ago I had, um, and, and work the same, uh, with the same passion and, uh, fearless, uh, risk-taking decisions going forward for the next 30 years. Mm. Yeah. Well, actually that's, that's why I like working with you because you do have some of that. I mean, we can always probably bring out more of it, but I have a distinction between conventional success and exponential success, right? Conventional success means you get to the top of the mountain and you kind of raise the trophy over your head and you say, hey, I've made it. You know, I've got the house, the car, the whatever it is. Uh, and now I'm playing defense, trying to keep it all. Whereas I think exponential success is I found a mission that I'm so excited about. I'm actually prepared to almost risk what I've currently done to create this thing that's 10 times bigger. I think that is in multiplying your impact. Uh, and it's always, it always can be a bit messy, but when we kind of leave the fear and defensiveness behind, that's the game that we get to play. And, and I see you starting to play that game. Absolutely. Um, I, I, uh, you said it well. It's uh, that comfort zone where that, uh, of, of sweet success at the beginning. It could be the most dangerous place of uh, many entrepreneurs where um, they uh, don't have the courage uh, to get out of it and, and jump into the next opportunity. Yeah, it's like the local maximum, right, in, in maths or whatever it is. You know, you're on a curve and it feels like you got to the top. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people, right, when they sell their companies, they go into depression, right? Because they're like, what am I going to do next? Uh, or other people, they get to the top, but then they feel they really need to move it. They, they actually lose the spark that got them there because now feels precarious it feels they've got to hold on to this and it's uh it's really interesting uh dynamic i see a play one one area perhaps we could talk about Ahmad is is also i know you you know you've been a member of our you are a member of of our, my ceo program um rivendell which i like to describe these days as like a mix between a deep coaching experience a ceo peer group entrepreneur peer group uh and also a kind of a strategic incubator as we bring together kind of interesting uh leaders and go on retreats together and do this kind of thing. So again, I'm just kind of wondering um, how that's fed into your journey. Um, I know, you know, you've been, you're in other CEO groups and, and things as well, YPO and, and other groups. So I'm wondering what your experience has been at Rivendell. Yeah, Rivendell was uh, my first great experience as well with the rest of, um, you know, the group that you're coaching um, because it uh, provides similar to what, a forum of the YPO uh, does. It's a very secure, safe environment where in a couple of days, 
um, you can share and exchange in a non-judgmental way um, advice with your peers. Um, so it is uh, always great to you know have um, a coach like you, but it's also great to uh, share with peers that they're you know at the same level in different industry, had different experiences, some of their know-how and and their history in business that can advise you in what to do specifically in, in that case, some things that I did with uh, the rest of uh, the Rivendell participants. And um, so it is a personal, smaller group um, uh, open to share their um, experiences in, uh, as I said, not, uh, um, not teaching you, but really uh, sharing uh, in, uh, in, a, in the right format um, how they can help you in, in whatever situation, personal or business, uh, you are in. So, uh, I think, uh, the problem of that is scaling it and challenging it for you to be able to service in the same way and provide that, uh, frame of opportunity to, uh, as many people as you can. Yeah. It's, um, I think what I've really tried to do with Rivendo is, is create, um, an intimacy with that group, which I think we've done very, I think I'm proud of what I've done in that, in that respect, because, I think even when people join the group, they get very deep very quickly with each other, which I think is is one of the distinctive things about that group. And I think the other thing is is the fact that um, there's the peer group dynamic, but then there's also this kind of quite heavily curated thing that I try to bring to kind of make it a journey for people uh, in a way that perhaps some of the other groups don't. At least that's been my experience. Um, but yeah, so you're in these two groups. You've got YPO and you've got Rivendell. So yeah, what would you kind of, like, if you're explaining people what the difference was, how would you describe that? Well, uh, YPO is a 34,000 member group, right? It's uh, actually the, the leadership of YPO is in Berlin uh, this week. And, and uh, I'm just seeing how um, a great idea 50 years ago has now become um, uh, such a large group that it's kind of impossible to manage and to grow. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, a lot of time and money is lost on just um, organizational stuff that they're not helping us, right? Um, well, with uh, with with a smaller group uh, and more intimate, um, you have you can able actually to take out much more and to give much more um, in a smaller group in much uh, closer format than um, you know the the organization that requires you now time and money and resources. Um, leadership, um, event organizations, things that are needed if you want to have a 30,000 members around the world experiencing the same thing. You care about four people or 10 people. Um, and I think that uh, this is, um, on the one side, this is the beauty, but that's also the challenge for you in, in, in scaling it up without losing that touch. Yeah, without losing. Yeah, and that's, it's a great point. And in fact, for me, Rivendell is that key part of my own mission right to help the world the world's top leaders multiply their impact to make a huge positive difference in the world and i i see that group becoming more and more that kind of exponential incubator uh for for those for leaders like you armand who you know you've done the one percent you're now doing the rest of the 99 is 100x scaling right and that's the kind of journey that's why it's, it's so fun working with you because yeah you are serious about that you are serious about um tapping into that fire of your uh of your past to create a different future in the world. And obviously financially, that's going to be hopefully great for you. And also, you know, the impact you make on other people is going to be a whole other level as well. So it's really exciting to see, to see that. Well, perhaps that's a great place to kind of wrap up 
I'm just thinking of a great question to kind of perhaps leave you with, to, to leave you with. Um, yeah, how, I mean, how about this? Um, if you were, yeah, if you're at the end of your life, um, looking back, how would you want to, yeah, what would you, what would you love your legacy to be? Like, how would you like to kind of describe that or have it on your, you know, on your tombstone or on your obituary? What, what, what would the ultimate professional legacy be? Yeah, there, there's a lot of exercises in, in the former coaches where you have to actually visualize uh, your, um, uh, your um, arbitrary and, and, and ceremony and what you would like people to say um, and how you want to be remembered. So uh, I've done this, but be the... <laughs> yeah, I'm putting you on the spot right now, which is a bit harsh. I didn't think maybe one was coming. So it's, it's not... It's no, no, no. I, I Actually, as I said, I have done it. It just it has been a very long time. So I guess that maybe... In the last few years, my uh, my uh, my uh, last things I want to be remembered might have changed, but um, I think that um, impacting people's lives and and um, by rebranding what it means to be a migrant into a positive uh, mindset is um, uh, is something that I would like to be remembered. Um, while we live in a society today, well, it's a it's a dirty word. And it's you know politically uh, charged, and it is economically negative. Um, if I can find a way in the next um, short span of the rest of my life to change that or contribute to changing it into uh, a positive formal of our society. Beautiful. Well, thanks, Armand. It's been a pleasure talking once again, and uh, speak to you soon. Bye bye. Well, that's a wrap. If you received value from this conversation, please do leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. We'd deeply appreciate it. And if you'd like to check out the show notes from this episode, head to xquadrant.com slash podcast, where you'll find all the details. Now, finally, when you're in top leadership, who supports and challenges you at a deep level to help you multiply your impact? Discover more about the different ways we can support you at xquadrant.com.